All right. Well, good morning, New Life Church. Let's uh, find our way to our seats this morning and get ready for God's Word. Who's ready for the Word of the Lord? All right. Well, good to hear that. <laughs> awesome. Let me invite you to open up. We're going to be in two, two places today. Old Testament, Exodus 6. Exodus 6 and then New Testament, Matthew 21. Exodus 6 and then Matthew 21. I'll give you guys just a moment to get there. We're, uh, we started last week with a series uh, built around Easter. And it uh, it'll actually carry over a couple of weeks past Easter. Just the way things uh, laid out and came together for it. But um, it's called He Is. And we're looking at four promises that God made to His people uh, in, in Exodus 6 that transfer into the new covenant uh, with us today through Jesus Christ that those four promises are still uh, God's word and he keeps his word and so we're looking at those and we'll get into that I want to just ask you as a church family that you would keep several families uh, in our church in prayer uh, during this time uh, our brother Mike Sheely, his brother passed away just the other day. They had the funeral and everything yesterday. Please remember Mike and his family. Uh, as well, Jeremy Young, uh, his grandmother passed away uh, as well uh, but all at the same time. And there are, their family is out of town at that funeral right now as we speak. And so please remember them in prayer uh, as well. And uh, Miss Neva, uh, Neva Collins, told me just this morning that she had an aunt pass away over the weekend as well. Uh, and so, uh, and then my grandmother, uh, who's a, who was a member here at our church, also passed away. And those funeral arrangements are, are tomorrow. And so, a lot of families to keep lifted up. Just uh, remember those families and uh, keep them in prayer as their names or faces cross your mind. Say a prayer. Uh, for, for each of those families. and uh, But on a lighter note, we did get to celebrate a wedding yesterday. Uh, Jordan Billingsley and Sarah Doris, jo uh, well now Sarah Billingsley. Jordan's our base, uh, or, yeah, base player up there. Uh, obviously he's on his honeymoon today. So, uh, But anyway, he was able to officiate that wedding yesterday. And so uh, they'll be back uh, next weekend. But anyway, uh, at least they, they might. They might just stay away. I don't know. Uh, but uh, you know how newlyweds are. So, but, uh, but anyway, got to celebrate that with them as well yesterday as they begin a new life together uh, in faith. So, all right. Well, you should be at Exodus chapter 6 um, right now. Let's look at, at these verses, verses starting in verse 1. And uh, you can also follow along on the screen if, if you don't have anything to look at there in your hands. It says this. It says, Then the Lord told Moses, He said, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave this land. That's Egypt and Pharaoh. Just a uh, side note. Egypt was a type and foreshadow for the world, the world system, the place of darkness. Pharaoh was a type and shadow of the devil. Okay, or the ruler of darkness. And God said, I will, I'm going to get them out. I'm going to get my people out. And he says this, verse 2. And then he said, and God said to Moses, he said, I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, meaning God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name Yahweh to them. 
quick side note as we go through this introduction here. God is, for the first time, He's telling Moses, He said, I'm revealing myself to you as Yahweh, which is God's personal name, His, His, His uh, personal, proper name. And He said, but to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I revealed myself to them as El Shaddai, God Almighty. That's God's one of God's descriptive names. He's got many descriptive names based on what He does. But for right here to, to Moses, he's telling him as he's about to deliver his people out of Egypt and get them set in motion to the promised land, that he said, I am making myself known to you personally. It's not based solely on what I can do, but it will also be based on who I am. Okay? Unfortunately, many people look at God as what he can do, which is fine, but many miss out on who he is, okay, who he is. And so right here, God is, he's making a point here. He's bridging the two of descriptive of what I can do and linking it to who I am. Verse 4, he says, And I reaffirmed my covenant with them, and under its terms I promised to give them the land of Canaan, where they were living as foreigners. You can be sure that I have heard the groans of the people of Israel who are now slaves to the Egyptians. And I am well aware of my covenant with them. God never forgets the promises he makes to his people. All right, you need to know that. God never forgets the promises that he has made to you. Verse 6, therefore, the Lord speaking to Moses, he said, Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. It's the same phrase, the same statement that he just told him in verse 3. He said, I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. I, that's my proper name, but it's also it's my personal name. And he, God has told Moses that, and now God's telling Moses to tell the people, hey, tell them, I am the Lord. In other words, they'll get it. They'll understand what you're saying. When you tell them, I am the Lord, that means I will personally be involved in your life. That, that brings reassurance to us that God is not some distant deity in the distant galaxy far, far away shouting or speaking commands or themes back our way. It means that He personally gets involved in our life. Personally. And that's what he's getting, that's what he's, this is so important. He's letting them know, hey, I'm not going to be some ruler away. I'm going to be a Lord who is love and who is very near and involved in your life. And he said, tell them, I am the Lord. And, here, and he says, here's what I will do. And he goes on and he starts to list these four promises. He says there, he says, I will free you from your oppression. In other words, I will save you. That's what we talked about last week. And then he says, I will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. In other words, I will deliver you from your bondage. And then he says, I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will redeem you. And then verse 7, he says, I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. In other words, he said, I will fulfill your life. And so he made these four promises through Moses to the people that apply to us today. And he said, I 
am Yahweh. I am personally involved. I will personally save you. I will personally deliver you. I will personally redeem you. I will personally fulfill your life. That's what I will do. But also, he said, I'm also tagging it and, and linking it to this. Not only will I save you, will I deliver you, will I redeem you, and will I fulfill you, but I will be your Savior. I will be your deliverer. I will be your redeemer and I will be your fulfiller. So you will not just know me as something that I can do, as someone that I can do, but you will know me personally as someone as who I am. All right? Let's finish this text. He says, then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. In verse 8, and I will bring you into the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own possession. I am the Lord. He ends it personal signature of that promise. Starts out with Moses. I am Yahweh. I'm personally involved. Tell the people I will personally be involved, and I'll end it by just letting you know, just making sure you get this. Three times that he repeats himself, I will personally be involved. So God makes these four promises. I will save, I will deliver, I will redeem, I will fulfill, but I will also be those in your life. I won't, it won't just be action-oriented, descriptive of something you can say I did, but it will also be something that you will experience personally because I am personally involved. You will know I am moving in to save you. You will know that I am coming to your rescue to deliver you. You will know that I will buy you back and redeem you. I'll be the one paying the price for your soul. And you will, you will know firsthand in your own heart, in your own soul, that you belong to me and that I am yours personally, personally involved. That makes a huge difference with the weights that we all carry in our life, whether it be the weights of worry and fear, anxiety or sin, or grief or sorrow or sickness, that we have a God who is personally aware and that He is personally on the scene, highly engaged, highly involved, acutely aware of what's going on inside of each and every one of us. And so God made these four promises. And actually, you know, these four promises were the foundation for Israel when they started their new life. In Exodus 12, the end of the plagues, at the very end, God instigated and started what would be known as a festival that God's people would celebrate every year that is called the Feast of Passover. We're actually, today in modern day, we celebrate that Good Friday. It's a time when God's people would come together to remember how God saved them, how God delivered them, how God redeemed their life, and how God fulfills their life. A time to, it's special, set apart to remember. And that's what we'll do this Friday, Good Friday. I hope you join me back here Friday night at 6 for a special candlelight communion service as we come together to remember that God is our Savior. He is our Deliverer. He is our Redeemer, and He is our Fulfiller. And then, of course, two days later, the stone rolls away in what we call Easter Resurrection Sunday. We'll celebrate that because without the resurrection, there is no life. And so, 
in this beginning part of this series here, this message, it's we've got to know and we've got to understand that God made these four promises. And it's first of all built on not only about what he will do, but it connects to who he is. Last week we talked about how God is our Savior. Today we're going to look at how God is our Redeemer. How God is our Redeemer. So let's open up the New Testament to Matthew 21. I'm going to say a prayer before we move forward. Get you, let you get to Matthew 21. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you today in your word which is a light and a lamp to our feet and our path. Oh Lord, this book holds the answers to life, full of wisdom and full of challenge. But in it is woven in its tapestry hope. There is hope for all of us because of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. Now as we open it up even further, we ask that you would open our eyes to see it clearer, to see it in a clearer way, to understand it in a greater way, and to live it in a more stronger way, I pray. Help me now speak your word of life and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. You should be at Matthew 21. Look at this statement on the screen. Jesus enters our life to redeem our life. This story here in Matthew 21, it's what in most Bibles it's titled Jesus' Triumphant Entry. It's triumphant entry. And it falls on what we is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. And that is what today is. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday leading into opening up what is called Holy Week or Passion Week, and it leads through and down to the cross, but ends with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this is special. This, this story, the triumphant entry, is a story that, that I think displays a part of God's redemption. So we're going to look at it and how, how this story shows us how God is our Redeemer, our Redeemer. To redeem, God's redemption is about buying us back. It's about purchasing our life back and restoring us to our original purpose and for that which we are born in. In this, in this particular story in, in Matthew 21, the triumphant entry, I like to look, I look at it in three ways, how God redeems us in three ways according to this story. He redeems us with purpose. He redeems us with position. And He redeems us with His power. Purpose, position, and power. So we're going to look at those three today. Let's start in verse 1. It says, As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage to, on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Now, they're approaching Jerusalem. That's where they're about to enter in, and that's where this triumphant entry takes place. He, he enters into Jerusalem. Now, if Jerusalem were a life, 
I believe it would say a few things. If Jerusalem could talk, if it were a life, a person, I think it would say a few things. Because in the context of Jerusalem, Jesus did quite a few things there. It was in Jerusalem where Jesus had a midnight conversation with Nicodemus, a religious leader, in John chapter 3. And out of John chapter 3 comes one of the most famous memorized verses in all of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, come on, but would have John 3, 16. It's where Jesus talks to Nicodemus and tells him about being born again, how to be born again, and why he needs to be born again. If Jerusalem were alive, I believe it would tell us, hey, if you're far from God and you don't really understand or believe this thing, it's God's love that changes everything. And there is hope for you through Jesus Christ. Jerusalem is also the place where Jesus was in John chapter 5 where he visited the pool of Bethesda and he healed an invalid, who, a man who had been stuck to his mat for 38 years, unable to walk, unable to move from waist down, stuck to a mat, a four-by-four four mat, unable to do anything, helpless, invalid, stuck there. I think if Jerusalem were alive, it would tell us today, hey, if you feel like you are stuck in a predicament, you are stuck in an ailment, you are stuck in a cycle, you are stuck in a pattern, that Jesus has the ability and the power and the love to set you free. That you don't have to stay bound in the place where you were bound, whether it be spirit, soul, or body. Jesus is kind enough and merciful enough and powerful enough to set you free, to liberate your life. If Jerusalem were a life, I think it would say that to us. Jerusalem is also the place where Jesus was brought by religious folks in John chapter 8, a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. There she was, drug out into the streets. And Jesus, it was there where he knelt down and he began to draw in the dirt, in the dusty roads of Jerusalem. I, there's a lot of theologians who's, who wonder, what did he write? What, what did he do? I, nobody knows. Maybe he just took a Twix break, and he was trying to figure out, what should I say? <laughs> I'll just do this. I don't know. But when he stood up and he spoke, he had a way of scattering the accusers and showering her with forgiveness. You see, if Jerusalem could, was a lot, were a life and it could talk, I think it would say something like, maybe you've, you're caught. Maybe you're snared. Maybe you're facing accusations. Maybe, maybe you're in a place where you, you've tried to break loose and be free, but no matter what, the patterns are just too big. The cycles are too strong. The bondage is too heavy. And there's Jesus to tell you, hey, there's no one here who condemns you. Nobody here can cast a stone your way, for they're all gone. And all that now reigns upon you is love and forgiveness. And hey, you don't need that old life anymore. 
let's start a brand new life from here on out together. That is the love and the power of Jesus Christ. If Jerusalem were a life, I think it would say a few things like that. And it also, that Jerusalem is also the place where in John 9, Jesus was visiting and he healed a man who was born blind. Born blind, never seen anything, didn't know what a tree looked like, couldn't tell you what a horse looked like, couldn't tell you what a donkey looked like, couldn't tell you what the human face looked like, unable to imagine what anything in this world ever looked like because he was born that way. It was not his fault. He was born into that predicament. And it was where in Jerusalem where Jesus faced this man and he spit on the ground and he made some mud and he put it, the mud in that man's eye sockets. And he told him, hey, I want you to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And he came, the man did what he told him to do and he came back seeing for the first time. Instantly being able to see, never able to see in his whole life, instantly able to see. I think if Jerusalem were a life, it would say something like, you might have been born into that position, that predicament, that, that problem, that cycle, that, that curse. But I want you to know that Jesus loves you enough and is strong enough to change the course of your direction and to open up your eyes to see life in a brand new way. That it's not your fault that that happened to you. It's not your fault that you, 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 you experienced that. It's not your fault that you were born into that kind of a family. But in Christ Jesus, He breaks and destroys curses and bondages, and He liberates and He sets us free. I think if Jerusalem were alive, it would say something like that to us. Jerusalem was also the place where Jesus stood trial. It was the place where he faced his accusers. Jerusalem was also the place where, he, where the crucifixion happened. Jerusalem was the place where he also had post-resurrection appearances to Mary and the disciples. So I think if Jerusalem were alive and it could talk to us today, it would tell us something maybe along the lines of Jesus took your place. Jesus stood in the face of all accusers. Jesus took on your pain and your sin and, and all of those things on the cross. But also, if Jerusalem could speak, it would tell us that, hey, I'm here again. I didn't stay down in the tomb. I was, I was resurrected. I came back for you. If Jerusalem could talk to us today, it would say something like, though it looks over, though things in your life look dead, though the marriage might be broken and beyond what you would think repair, though things are hurting in your life and things are dark in your life and there's a heavy stone rolled over the face of your life, Jesus is here today to tell you, I've come back for you, and I'm here to remind you that I have not forgotten the promises that I made to you. That you can count on me to deliver. You can count on me to come through. You can count on me to make it happen in your life. If Jerusalem were alive, I think it would talk, and it would tell us that he is a redeemer. And that is the city where Jesus enters. And so it tells us Jesus enters our life to redeem our life. And he redeems, and this story shows three ways, with his purpose, with his position, and with his power. Let's look at these three. Verse 2 through 7. Jesus 
redeems with purpose. Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said, Go into the village over there, and as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you were doing, just say, The Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. And you try that with a car these days, you'll go to jail. <laughs> Grand Theft Auto. And it says, verse 4, This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And the two disciples did as Jesus commanded, and they brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Jesus redeems with purpose. So this happened to fulfill the prophecy, the word of God. You see, God does not do anything by accident. Nothing happens with God by surprise. To us, yes, but to God, no. God knows things are going to happen and how they're going to take place. But he works in a way that is with purpose, that is on purpose. Romans 8, 28. When things don't make sense in life, when stuff kind of gets hazy and fuzzy and you wonder, what do I do with this? I always go back to Romans 8, 28 that says, For we know that God is able to turn everything around for the good of those who love Him and those who are living for Him. That's my paraphrase. Those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. In essence, you love God and you live for God. You're loving God and you're living for God. God has a way of turning everything around, working everything out for the good of them. It's with purpose. And it, see, the thing is, He came riding on a donkey. And it's titled, The Triumphant Entry. He didn't come riding with a, a horse-drawn carriage. He didn't come in a bulletproof motorcade. He came with some of his disciples' clothes draped over the back of that donkey, and there he sat riding it into Jerusalem. And Matthew calls it the triumphant entry because it fulfilled the word of God. He was humble and lowly riding on a donkey. You see, Jesus didn't need a whole lot of stuff to draw a whole lot of attention to himself. In fact, they tried to do the opposite. And here he was riding on a donkey. You see, his purpose, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to abolish sin in mankind. Jesus came to give mankind a whole new abundant life in Him. A whole new start, a whole new life, brand new. The slate clean, forgiveness offered, the price paid, future secured. And He came riding on a donkey, the triumphant entry. It just goes to show us this, that God will use the most unlikely thing, the, uh, the most unlikely person, the most unlikely situation to enter into our world, to enter into our life. Well, hey, where was he born? He was born in a manger. The most unlikely place for a baby, human baby, to be born, much less the Son of God born in a manger. And here he is riding on a donkey, most unlikely Thing. 
And friend, I want to tell you that God redeems your life with purpose. He has purpose in what's going on. There's purpose in your pain. There's purpose in your sorrow. There is purpose in your problems. But you want to find out what that purpose is? Put Him first. Trust Him with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let Him be Lord. Let Him be Savior. Let Him lead you. Let Him guide you. Let Him call the shots in your life. Let Him be the one that you lean on more than anyone else. Let Him be the one that you follow no matter what. You see, He redeems our life with purpose. There's purpose in the most unlikely things that God uses. It's crazy. We could all think back about life. We could think back over this week, perhaps in some of our cases and scenarios, how God uses the most unlikely things to get our attention. God uses the most, sometimes the most odd situations. People and places are things that we think, man, they, they, we don't make, maybe not think much about it, but God says, look, I, I'm trying to get your attention here. And that's what he does. He uses even, you know what, he even uses our own faults, not against us, but as a way to get to us. For it's our, in our brokenness, in our realization of our need, of our, of our frailty, of our depravity, that we realize and that we see we need Him. We need a Savior, and man, do we need a Redeemer to buy us back, to restore our life back to its original purpose. Only God can do that, and He does that because He does. He, he lives redemption, and He is redemption, and He does redemption with purpose. Let's look at the next thing. Jesus redeems with position. Verse 8 through 11. Everybody following me? Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut palm branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's the picture, the description of why they call it Palm Sunday. They put all those palm branches and their garments down to make a path. In verse 9, it says, Jesus was in the center of the procession. And the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus redeems with his position. It said right there in the middle of this procession, Jesus was at the center. Can you say that? The center. Jesus was at the center. Colossians 1 says a whole lot of good stuff, but verse 17 says that in Christ, He holds life together. He holds all of creation together. He holds life together. Christ Jesus holds life together for us. I don't know how people get through life without Jesus. I don't know why people are still so darn persistent and stubborn about not surrendering to Jesus Christ. It's too hard. So well, you're not tough enough, man. You're not man enough. You're not, you're not strong enough. You're not brawn enough. You're darn right I'm not. 
Because you take the toughest person to ever live, face their death, yeah, reality hits real fast. Reality check real quick. Jesus at the center holds life together. Here's the good news. You ready for this? Takes the pressure off. We don't have to hold it together. That's awesome. That's good news. That's liberating. I don't have to hold it together. We said, man, I'm just trying to keep it together. Get what we're saying. I understand that. But here, I even prayed that this morning. Lord, I'm not strong enough to do all this. I'm not strong enough to do all this. And he's like, you don't have to be. I'll be strong for you. I'll be strong in you. I mean, four funerals and a wedding in one weekend? I didn't have to do, do all of them. I'm doing one funeral, and I did a wedding, but I was involved in a lot of different ways. And I'm like, Lord, help me here. He's like, okay. Jesus holds life together. He's at the center. He redeems with position. And he is at the center whether we recognize it or not, whether we all get that or not. He's at the center. But here's the deal. He wants to be at the center of our lives. Not because he needs attention, but because he knows it's in him, by him, and through him that everything takes place. It's what's in essence what, what Colossians 1, around verse 15 through like 20, talks about. And right in the middle, verse 17, he holds life together. You see, if we will make him the center and we will keep him the center, then here's the promise. He will hold our life together. No matter what we encounter... That's so why I love Psalm 23, and it's often read at funerals and things like that, but it's just a good thing for life, period. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and sit beside the still, quiet waters. He restores my soul. And then on down, he says, He leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for his rod and his staff, they comfort me. He even makes me sit at the table in the presence of my enemies and he overflows my cup and his goodness and mercy shall always follow me all the days of my life. You see, no matter what part of life you and I travel through, if Jesus is the center of our life and we keep him the center of our life, he'll hold our life together. We look at some people and we see their story and we hear about their testimony and we look at like, how in the world are you getting through this right now? How are you making it through this right now? And all we can say and they say is, Jesus. And I know that to some people it sounds so cliche-ish and so Christian-easy and it's like, really, yes, really, because he is personally involved in my life. He personally feels the weight of my soul. He personally is carrying my sorrows right now. How did you overcome that major difficult battle in your life? Jesus. Jesus. He holds my life together. He keeps my life together. 
So if we will put him center, keep him center, he will hold your life together, even when life doesn't make any sense, even when it's topsy-turvy, even maybe when you're overcome by guilt and regret and shame because of the, what sin can do to a person. Jesus is strong enough and great, and great enough, as we talked about last week, with his grace to not only cover us, but to raise us up and to make us stronger, to live more for him. So if we need keep him at center, he holds our life together, which is why water baptism is such a significant part of a believer's life. Again, I'll echo what my wife said earlier. Uh, the Sunday following Easter, we're going oh, uh, uh, to have water baptisms in our service. And I know from what she has told me, several of your, your children have been talking to her about that, hopefully talking to you about that as parents and perhaps any other adolescents or adults here today that perhaps you've never been baptized, but you know you're at a place in life where you believe and you know you want to you step out and move forward in your public faith. That's what baptism will do. Put you, it's a public witness of your inward faith. Then please sign up at our Connect table today before you leave. Let us know. We'll be in contact with you to talk to you more about that. Perhaps you, maybe you've been in a place in life where maybe you were baptized a while back maybe as a young person or years ago, but so many things have happened since then. Maybe you've got a greater glimpse and revelation of God's love and grace and power in your life, and you know that there's been a, such a triumphant revival, so to speak, in your own life, that I would encourage you. It's, don't, it's not required. It's, you know, double baptisms. I've baptized people three times before who have been baptized a couple times before getting to me. And I just tell them, look, perhaps the Lord has done something so great and so new in you. doesn't mean you have to keep getting baptized. That's not the thing here. But it's just you know beyond a shadow of a doubt something great and transform transformative has taken place in your life since your last time. And you know it's a whole new life for you. So take that for what it is. I'm not trying to fill up, you know, 2,500 people to get baptized on that Sunday. But we want you to know that we really believe in water baptism and uh, that, that that's coming up. So lastly, the third point here, Jesus redeems with power. Verses 12 through 17. Now we're going to break this one down a little verse by verse here as we conclude with this sermon today called He is Redeemer. Jesus redeems with power. Verse 12. It says, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and, he, and the chairs of those selling doves. Here's uh, this, this text here in these, these five verses. Uh, shed light on his power, how his power redeems us in these ways. First, his power rearranges our life. He entered the temple and he completely rearranged it, completely changed it up. And I believe that's a picture of, of our own heart and our own soul and our own life. When Jesus comes in, he changes us. He moves furniture around, so to speak. Stuff that's been hanging out for a long time. He says, you know what, you don't really need that old piece of furniture anymore. I know it might be symbolic to you, but really it's a, it, it, it is a detriment to your future, to your destiny. Let's get that out. Let's clean house. Let's clear house. Let's completely, let's completely overhaul and restructure the inner part of who you are. 
You see, that's the power of Jesus. He redeems us with power, and His power rearranges our life. It gives us stability where we didn't have any. It gives us structure and fortitude where we lacked it. And His power so revolutionizes, rearranges our life that He gives us strength where we have always been weak. We all have weaknesses, but in all of us, there's some points in our life that is very weak, that continue to be weak. But if we'll let Jesus into that part of that room, that secret room or closet or chamber, we don't let anybody else in. We just kind of push away all of our, our stuff right there. And we don't talk about it. We don't let people in. But if you'll let Jesus in there, he'll clean you. And he'll make you new. Because you see, part of his redemption is you don't go on living with all of those secrets tucked away. That he has a way of taking it away. He has a way of removing them. He rearranges our life. His power does this, number two. His power reconnects us with God. Verse 13, he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Prayer, the most intimate word used to interact with God. Prayer, it's not a religious thing, duty interaction it's intimacy it describes communion it describes relationship prayer his power his power renews or excuse me reconnects us with God maybe you feel separated here today maybe you have someone in your family a, a friend perhaps or you feel distant from God for whatever reason whatever thing but I want you to know that if you will allow the power of God to enter your life he has a way to redeem you and reconnect you with him that you don't have to live this life distant separated cold isolated no you see Jesus wants a personal relationship with you very personal relationship with you and he has a way to reconnect you with God Almighty and God your Father God your Creator number three his power his power renews our spiritual sight and walk his power renews our spiritual sight and walk verse 14 it said the blind and the lame came to him in the temple What did it say he did? He healed them. He didn't turn them away. He didn't yell at them. Tell them, get your life cleaned up before you come to me. So get your ducks in order before you approach me. I'm Jesus. Come on. No, he, he actually cleaned their life up for them. He actually turned their life around. He, he renewed. He healed them. And that's what his power does. The power of Jesus renews our spiritual sight and our spiritual walk. Where we are, have been unable to really see things clearly, where we've been unable to see God in certain things in life, period, in our own life, 
Jesus' power has a way of renewing our sight. Maybe you've been looking at life from the wrong perspective. Maybe you've been viewing situations from the wrong angle. Maybe you've not viewed yourself the way God truly views you. Jesus' power renews that sight and allows you to see things clearly. Maybe you haven't been real strong in your walk with God. Maybe you've had, you felt like maybe you fall more than you stand. Maybe you feel like your faith flounders in times of hardship, temptation, what have you. Maybe you've just not been a real strong follower. But here's what Jesus' power does. It renews your walk. It enables you and empowers you to be stronger from here on out as you allow Jesus to enter into your life and to be that for you. Maybe you've been the one that people relied on to be strong. and Maybe you have to a degree, but you know inside, it's only going to take one more thing to really break you down, to really crumble you, for your cards to collapse. Jesus is saying, look, quit trying to be so strong and so tough, so there for everybody else. Let me be there for you. Let me be that strong in you. Let me be that pillar of strength in you. And I will empower you to walk stronger from here on out because you don't have to do it all by yourself. You can't. Jesus renews our spiritual sight and our spiritual walk. But then lastly, His power. His power restores our praise. Verse 15 says, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting. They were shouting, praise God for the son of David. And the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these people, these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read your Bible? Haven't you ever read the scriptures? It says, for they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise, talking about him. And then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. His power restores our praise. These children and these others, they were praising him. They got it. They understood it. They had a revelation. They had an understanding. The children were praising him. But the religious adults were upset at that. Do you hear what they're saying? And I'm reminded of Psalm 150 that tells us everything that has breath praise the Lord right everything that has breath praise the Lord I'm reminded of a story in the book of Acts with Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16 they had gotten arrested not for causing trouble by drinking too much and public disturbance and public intoxication or anything like that, but for preaching the gospel, preaching the name of Jesus. So they were in prison. They were locked down under chain and behind prison doors in the dungeon. 
And it said about midnight, they began praying and praising God. And it said a massive earthquake came, and it shook things. And it even shook the chains that they were bound to off of their wrists and hands. And it opened up the prison doors so that everybody who was a prisoner got free. What well, it woke up the prison guard, and he got scared. And you see, if people escaped on your duty as a prison guard, you were going to be held personally responsible, and they would execute you. So he was about to execute himself because he thought everybody left. But Paul, knowing that, saw him, and he said, Hey, dude, wait a second. Oh, he might have not said, Dude, I would. He said, Dude, wait just a second. We're all here. We're all accounted for. I promise you, we didn't leave. We're free, but we didn't escape. And he said, I want you to know something. And the prison guard looked at him, and he's like, Why didn't you guys leave? And he began to share with him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that man said to Paul, What can I do to be saved? And Paul told him, and his whole household became believers. You see, but the way that all transpired was because of praise. You see, sometimes I think we underestimate the power of our praise. We think it's just something we do at church. Or we think, man, we can only do it when the music's just right. But what do you do when you don't have a service and you don't have a worship CD going on and you're facing something? You get the bad news that somebody died or you get a bad diagnosis that the doctor said this is going to happen to you. Or you're dealing with something and, and it's overwhelming. What do you do then? You call, you call Darling Check, you call anybody else that you know that's a famous worship leader and you say, hey, can you start singing over me right now? No. The Bible says that my praise will continually be in my mouth for the Lord because praise has power. Praise shakes things loose as we know the story in Acts 16. Praise shakes things loose, but also praise will take off any bondage that you might be dealing with. It takes off the chains. You feel bound, you feel heavy, you feel depressed, you feel oppressed, you feel overwhelmed with fear, you feel overwhelmed with anxiety, you feel overwhelmed with grief and sorrow, you feel overwhelmed with whatever. Praise is the thing that begins to break those things loose. Praise opens up doors where doors have been shut in your face. Praise also leads to other people's salvation in Jesus Christ. It's said of the Lord that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah means praise. Lion of the tribe of praise, meaning he has a roar of praise going on all the time. And I believe in our world right now, in our life right now, we need to unleash the lion, the roar of praise. Because I think far too often we allow what's going on around us and what's happening to us to suffocate the life of Jesus in us. You see, God already removed the tomb and he's all, Jesus already stepped out and he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God right now interceding for you and I. And by faith, we're seated in heavenly places. Ephesians 2 talked about it last week. We're sitting right there with him. But praise is what magnifies 
and what causes all of that to become real in our own hearts and lives at any moment. Praise. So, God, I don't know how I'm going to get through this struggle right now, but I'm going to still praise you. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense of what's happening in my world right now, but I am going to praise you. God, I don't, I'm way too weak to overcome that issue in my life right now, and I feel like every time I feel like a loser, and I feel like I'm a defeated person, and I feel like, man, I feel so low because it keeps coming around, but I'm still, I'm going to praise you because I believe I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made in your sight, and you have a destiny for my life, and it's not meant for me to live in this predicament the rest of my life. I will praise you because I believe praise will free me. God, I don't know how I'm going to pay my mortgage note this month. It's tough. It's tight. I gave my tithe and I gave my offering and I don't know how I'm going to get by, but I am still going to praise you because I believe you are my source. God, I don't know why my marriage sucks the way it does right now. I don't know why he or she is all up in my grill and my business hating on me like this and they ain't acting right. Maybe they're cheating on me. Maybe they're doing stuff they shouldn't be doing. But I ain't going to let all that stuff get me down because, God, I will keep my life right and pure in your sight, yet will I praise you. I won't curse them, I won't talk about them, and I won't drag their name through the city streets because I will still praise you because I know there's a day coming where they will get right with you. Lord, I know right now my children are in a bad place and they're rebellious. They have completely gone off the grid and they're not looking at you. They're not noticing you. They're not studying you. They ain't paying any attention to you. They're off in college and they're partying and having a good old time. So they think, but I know I trained them up in the ways of the Lord. And I know the seed of your word is in their heart. Yet will I praise you. all the time or do we take our praise and point it to God that in spite of whatever it is I deal with face or going on right now I will praise you I will praise you because there is power in our praise and we need to unleash the roar of our praise when you're facing a dark day praise him When things aren't going your way, praise Him. When you're facing something you don't understand, praise Him. When you're you're dealing with something that is unfair, praise Him. When you feel depressed, praise Him. 
When you feel low, praise Him. When you don't feel like going to work, praise Him. You got a place to go to work, praise Him. When you don't like eating bologna and cheese sandwiches for three weeks because you don't have any more money to rub together, praise Him because you had some bologna and some cheese. You catch my drift. Praise Him. Praise Him. Do not let the devil steal your praise. I know some old churchgoers used to say that all the time. Don't let the devil steal your praise. What are you talking about? Because if he steals your praise, he'll steal your joy. He'll steal your freedom. He'll keep you prohibited and and, and locked down long enough to where you'll forget about your destiny. To where you'll start to think, well, it just must not be in God's will. It just must have not been something the Lord wanted me to do. Here I am, stuck in this place. It's because you forgot to stop, continue to praise God. Now, it's not a religious thing. Okay, don't misunderstand. You get, you know, you get all excited. Oh, I'm going to praise you. Get my praise on. It's not just about that. Because I guarantee you, your flesh will try to tell you otherwise very soon thereafter. And it's your soul, it's in your spirit that you've got you've to tell yourself. That's why David spoke to himself a lot. He's told himself, he said, soul, you better praise God. Soul, people are after you right now. They don't like you right now. Things aren't going your way. But soul, you better praise God because there's life in praise. Amen. Can we stand to our feet? Wrap this up. Jesus is power he redeems us with power and part of that power is he restores our praise I know it's a little kind of subdued and quiet in here and we don't have like a whole full band or anything like that but can we just on our own offer up praise to God from our own mouth, out of our own heart. Clap, lift your hands, open your mouth, lift your voice, and let's just praise God for just a few minutes. Think about what you got happening, but yet praise the Lord above from whom all blessings flow. Come on, let's praise Him right now. Let's let's unleash that roar of praise out of our mouth this morning. God, we, we love you, hallelujah. We glorify you and we praise you right now. We praise you right now, Lord. Come on, with your own mouth, praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the living God. Hallelujah. and put your hand on the shoulder of the person next to you.
Bible says that two are better than one and a threefold cord is not easily broken. Together now, begin to praise God for that person on your left or your right. Begin to praise Him for the people that you're touching right now. Begin to let them hear you praise God and thank God for their life, that they're here, that they exist, that they're on this earth for such a time as this. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father, for the church. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for real people, Lord, just like me, who struggle, who go through things. But yet we can count on one another and we can depend on each other. I thank you that everyone here is fearfully and wonderfully made in the eyes of God. And that whatever issue, whatever struggle, whatever burden we carry right now, on behalf of my brother and my sister in Christ, we lift them up to you today. That you will lighten their load and you will be peace in their storm. That you will be joy in the midst of their sorrow. You will be provision in the midst of their lack. Today, oh God, they will see you will be strength where they are weak. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Envelop us in your arms right now. Hold us tight. Hold us strong. And continue, oh God, to make us one. A unified church in purpose, in heart, and in mind. Fill each life now fresh with your spirit, I pray. Holy Spirit, come. Fill every life. Where one is in the valley right now, strengthen them fresh and anew to walk out and to come through on the other side. Hallelujah. Thank you for your presence that's here right now. And together we praise you. We magnify you. We exalt you. I, we praise you that you are for us and not against us. We praise you that you are with us and not removed from us. We praise you that, God, you are on our side. And if you are for us, then who can be against us? God, you are on our side. Let us know today in our own mind, in our own heart, you are on our side. You are with us. You are for us. Hallelujah. And may it be reality in every step we take and every breath we make this week that as we approach the celebration of Easter weekend with Good Friday, a time to remember and reflect of how you saved us, of how you, God, move in our life to deliver us and redeem us and fulfill us. And as we gather to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that though it might be dark sometimes in our world, and we might have stones rolled over our life, that your power moves those. And Lord, help us to walk in praise this week. Help us to walk in praise. We will praise you through everything. In Jesus' name. Amen.